0: We are continuing through the Gospel of Matthew, so if you like to follow along, we are in chapter 26, uh, continuing to move through it. And one of the questions that people have had ever since Jesus came into our human history is the question of, who is this man? And understanding who Jesus is is pretty much the thing that defines a, uh, a faith as a Christian faith or not. For example... Jesus is written about a lot in the Quran. In fact, Jesus is mentioned more in the Quran than Muhammad is. But in the Quran, Jesus is just considered a prophet. He's not considered divine in any way. Mormonism says that Jesus is a super evolved human being who has evolved to the point of becoming the God of his own planet, and that in fact, as a man, if you go through all the rituals that are necessary in Mormonism, you too can evolve to become a god of your own planet, a super-evolved human being. Jehovah's Witnesses, who we see out in the street quite often, say that Jesus is the first creation of God and that he and the archangel Michael are one and the same. Judaism doesn't really have any particular interpretation of Jesus. It kind of depends on the person. Some see him as a prophet. Some see him as a devil-possessed deceiver. And none of these believe that Jesus is God among us. And from my experience, even Christians can be somewhat unclear as to who Jesus is. Many will say he's God. If you say, who is Jesus? They'll say he's God. But, but then when you press them as to what does that mean, then the understanding starts to become a little bit fuzzy. What do we mean when we say Jesus is God among us? He clearly states he's not the Father. He says that. And yet he says, I and the Father are one. And when he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, there is definitely this sense of unity between them. But then at the same time, he'll say there's things that only the Father knows that he doesn't know as the Son. The most well-known one being the, the date of the last, basically the last time of the second return. And other times he'll speak with the authority of God, but then we'll see pictures of him, stories of him pleading in prayer with a brokenness and a sorrow that any human being would when they're under stress. And in the early church, this idea of who is Jesus was a perplexing one. And the early church came up with all kinds of different interpretations to try and understand who Jesus is. In fact, the Gospel of John is pretty much that's what it's doing. The whole Gospel of John is really answering the question of who Jesus is. That's why all the I am statements are found in the Gospel of John. And these different proposals came and went. Some were fought over. Some were accepted and then later considered to be heresy. If you've been here at IBCD for some time, you've probably heard me use the picture of the father being like the ocean, which is vast and mysterious and full of life. And the sun is like a glass or this bottle that is filled with ocean water. And if you were to test the chemical makeup of the ocean, and this is, let's pretend that this is from the ocean. It's not. But uh, if it were, if you test the makeup of the ocean and you test the makeup of the water in the bottle that's from the ocean, it would be the same. But there's a difference. The bottle, the glass, isn't the ocean. There are things that the ocean holds in it which are mysterious and vast. And I can't bring the ocean to my house and put out a fire, but I could bring the bottle. Just like I couldn't crucify an infinite spirit. But the bottle, the crucified Christ, could be killed, could feel the pain, could die and rise again. And that's one way to kind of think about the relationship between the Father and the Son. But even this, illustration has its weaknesses every illustration has its weaknesses because as much as that's just a little tiny bit if that were from from the ocean it would still diminish the ocean just that little tiny bit and of course you cannot diminish infinite spirit so everything we try and come up with as human beings is a little bit it falls a little short because you know we're, we're trying to explain almighty god through our limited human words in the early church, one of the things that they came up with was a description of Jesus that said this, that he is fully God and fully man. Now, you can probably imagine this definition also creates some questions within itself. I mean, what is it saying? Well, it's saying that in his essence, Jesus is fully God. And using the water and the ocean illustration, that's just the water in the ocean is, is uh, made up of a certain chemical makeup. The water in the glass is the same. They're the same. So in this way, Jesus' character and essence is that of God without any compromise. And the Scripture talks about that. The Apostle Paul, he's probably the main theologian of our faith, says this, For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he may have the supremacy. This is the salient verse here. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed upon the cross. He says it again in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, in a more succinct way, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So in this we have Jesus fully God. Not the Father, but his very character and essence is that of God, without any diminishing in his essence or his character. However, just as the glass is not the ocean, It's fragile. It's contained. It can be broken. In that same way, Jesus is fully man with all the physical weaknesses and, surprisingly to some, even physical temptations. Hebrews says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet without sin. And again, the Apostle Paul puts this into words. He says this, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, because he was already there. He was in very nature God. He doesn't need to grasp for something he already is. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him in the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So today as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus as fully man, wanting to find comfort in his friends, falling on his face before God in prayer uttering the prayer which was not going to be answered in the way that he desired and instead he puts himself in the hands of the father but then we'll also see another jesus a confident jesus facing his destiny where he proclaims with authority that he could call upon legions of angels if he wanted to to defend him and yet again puts himself under the destiny for which he was destined for before even the creation of the world. And in this, he acts and speaks as fully God. So let's read the entirety of this passage in Matthew, and then we'll break it down. This is Matthew 26, verses 36 through 56. It's a long passage, so let's take a look. It says this. When Jesus went with his disciples to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, that's James and John, and began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father. If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. "'Put your sword back in its place,' Jesus said to him. "'For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. "'Do you think I cannot call on my Father, "'and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels?' But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? At that time Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets may be fulfilled. And all the disciples deserted him and fled. So this is another one of these passages which has had dozens of sermons written on it. And I imagine over the years, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've heard several sermons on this, especially right around Easter time and Good Friday. But today I want us to take kind of the, the overall view of this passage and see how Jesus is presented here. And the story, how it pivots around this central thing that takes place, which is betrayal, which Matthew puts right in the middle of it. As I've mentioned before, he likes to do this as kind of a literary device. He uses it as a center to be the pivot point or the important point of the story. So as it begins, Jesus is appearing very human. What I mean by this is Jesus is stressed out. He's feeling vulnerable, and he's feeling alone. In his own words, he describes himself as a man whose soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, and he reaches out to his friends, just like any human would that's under a a lot of stress, he reaches out to his friends and says, stay here and keep watch with me. Sometimes, many times, people like to minimize Jesus' turmoil during this prayer in the garden because it seems that he's a little bit too human here. He's, a little bit, he's not the Jesus that calms the raging storm. He's not the Jesus that fed the 5,000. He doesn't seem to be the Jesus that had authority to cast out demons. He seems a little bit too fragile to some folks. But I think we shouldn't minimize what he's going through and how he's presented in the Scriptures here because it reminds us that in Jesus Christ, God entered into our humanity. He entered into our ha- humanity for what it means, the joys of our humanity, but also the miseries of our humanity. And he didn't spare himself the things that we go through in our darkest days. He didn't spare himself fear. He didn't spare himself anxiety. He didn't spare himself stress. He didn't spare himself suffering. He didn't spare himself death. Jesus entered into our humanity, and he walked through every aspect of what it means to be a human being. And on top of this, he undergoes the additional stress of becoming sin for us. And this is something that I think we have a hard time getting our heads around, because how does the very Word of God made flesh dwelling among us become sin for us? He takes upon himself all the accountability for every sin that's committed. both All those sins, the sins that we can say out loud, like murder and theft, but also those sins that we don't even want to say out loud. And yet we know human beings are capable of. He becomes accountable for all of that. And what that would do to someone, how that kind of is an identity crisis for him, is beyond our comprehension. And he reaches out and he prays, he prays, just like we would pray if we were in this situation. My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me but not as I will, but as you will. Scripture doesn't say this, so this is kind of my own speculation, but I wonder at this point, because Jesus is taking our sin, becoming sin for us, he has this prayer that he lifts up, may this cup be taken from me, but at this point, because he is so, kind of in a way, separated from himself, he's become the thing upon which the Father's wrath is going to pour upon. He doesn't trust his own will so he says, you know, this is what I want, but your will be done. Because what he wants, he knows is impossible, but he still wants it nonetheless. And he prays this three times that this cup could be taken from him. But at every time, he reminds himself that it's not his will to be done, but the Father's will. Can you identify with this Jesus? Is this Jesus someone that you can kind of empathize with? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been through a time of pain and turmoil? Have you ever been in a place where you were looking for the support of your friends, but you found them to be lacking or disappointing in their support? Sometimes we find that our friends are more interested in correcting us as Christians. When we are walking through a valley in our life, they're more interested in making sure our theology is staying straight instead of empathizing with our pain. The book of Job, that's pretty much two-thirds of the book of Job. His friends not really comforting him, but just trying to correct him. Or there's times when your world has come crashing down around you and it seems like the people around you are complaining about having a hangnail. And you're like, my world is crashing. And they're like, Yeah, me too. And you're like, no, nah, it's not the same. But they just don't seem to get it. If you've ever been there, so has Christ. And then there's his prayer, his prayer broken on his face. Have you ever been there? Have ever been begging God for a different outcome to what's going on around you? And you're begging God, begging God, and yet there's this part of you that begins to, to know. This isn't going to go your way. This isn't going to go the way that you want. This happens a lot with people like we'll, we'll pray for someone to be healed and we'll see someone go through this kind of, miraculous type of, you know, recovery and healing, and we're all, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. But when the people we pray for don't get healed and they end up dying, I've noticed that we tend to be a little bit quiet when that happens. Almost as if we're kind of embarrassed that God didn't answer that prayer, at least not the way we were wanting. And we think that somehow God is lacking. And we don't want to say that out loud. Because it sounds like a faithless thing to say. But we've been there. We've all been there. Have you ever been in that place where there's kind of this paradoxical feeling of your faith being crushed, but while at the same time being strengthened? When you're in the middle of the crisis, you're relying completely upon God and your faith is kind of strengthened, but at the same time you're going through this process of being crushed? So does Jesus. He understands that. Have you ever felt let down by God? How can you let this happen to me? Where are you? And then in the Gospel of Matthew, the mood completely changes. It pivots around Judas coming and carrying out his act of betrayal. When Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, which Matthew puts in the middle of the account, we see a whole different side of Jesus. And God is the man who is broken and is in fear, and he's replaced by Jesus who is fully God, in control, with perspective, and without anxiety or stress. He calls his betrayer friend. You don't see any resentment expressed towards Judas. He calls him a friend. And then we see Peter, and we know this from other Gospels, he's the one that pulled out the sword and tried to defend Jesus. We talked about this last week. Peter thought this was going to be his test of faith. This is where he was not going to deny his Lord. This is what he thought would be his test. And he pulls out a sword, and he cuts off the ear of a servant. And he gets rebuked again by Jesus. Jesus tells him, listen, man, for all who live by the sword will die by the sword. Put the sword away. And then he says with confidence that if he had wanted to, he could summon 12 legions of angels to stand in his defense, to fight for him. He doesn't need a fisherman who really doesn't know how to handle a sword very well to try and defend him. But then he says that the scriptures would not be fulfilled if he did this. Do you not think... Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That is a statement of confidence and of strength. But he also follows it up with a statement of perspective. But how then would scripture be fulfilled that say, it must happen this way? And Jesus knew this. We've gone through the gospel of Matthew. He told his disciples clearly at least four times that he was going to be crucified. And on the third day, he would rise again. So here's a different Jesus. This is a Jesus who understands his destiny, a destiny that was written even before creation came into being, a destiny in which his divinity is intertwined. Later, Paul Peter wrote about this mystery. He said this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers but with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so that your faith and hope are in God. Can you identify with this Jesus? Can you identify with this Jesus of confidence, this Jesus of strength, this Jesus of perspective? I hope there's some part of you that can if you're a believer, because if you are in Christ, then your destiny is Christ's destiny. You have joined your destiny to the destiny of Jesus Christ. You see, we are more than just evolved monkeys hoping to get through this life as best as we can and die as painlessly as we can. And there's a lot of talk in theology about being predestined. And I have to admit, I don't really know uh, where to land on that whole predestination thing in my own specific specific life. But I do know this because the Gospels are crystal clear and the Bible is crystal clear. Jesus is destined before the creation of the world to be our Savior. One of the bad teachings that's out there in the church is that in the Garden of Eden, there was plan A and then sin comes along in the world and then God is kind of scrambling around to figure out plan B. That's how the Old Testament kind of portrays it because that's how they understood what had happened. But we find that Christ was destined to be our Savior before the creation of the world and everything that has been happening is part of a plan. And Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, was destined to be in this role. And when we die to self, and put our trust in Jesus Christ, what we're doing is we're tying our destiny to the destiny of Christ. So that where he goes, we go. We talk about this a lot when people are baptized. Romans chapter 6 says, those of you who've been baptized into Christ, which is this joining of your life with Christ, baptized into his death so that you also be part of his resurrection and live eternal life. Your destiny isn't your own anymore, because without Christ, our destiny is a destiny of death. Without Christ, our destiny is a destiny of separation from God. With Christ, our destiny is a destiny of eternity. Our destiny is a place of hope. That old destiny of sin and death is gone, and it's replaced by a new destiny of hope and of life. And nothing can ever take that away from you. Nothing. So in this passage of Matthew, again, we see Jesus fully God and fully man. And while it, of course, is different than what we experience because he is who he is, our experiences may not be so far from his as you might think. Because you are also fully fragile, fully fallible, fully in need of a Savior. But if you're a believer and follower of Christ, you're also fully redeemed. You're fully forgiven. And your life has been destined for a life that is now eternal, where there's no more pain, and there's no more tears. So don't let the betrayals of this life tear you down. Don't let those places in your life where you go through difficulty make you think that you've somehow been abandoned by God. Because you're not. You're no more abandoned by God than Jesus was abandoned by God when he was in the garden and upon the cross. He felt it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet within that, he knew this was his destiny. So hang on to that. Because if you're in Christ, you have a high priest that understands everything you go through. He understands every fear, every anxiety, every disappointment, every pain. And he'll give you the strength to bear those things with grace and hope until we entered into that place of shared eternal destiny with Christ, where we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May it be so. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, of course, for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I really can't imagine what we would be leaning on and hoping for if it weren't for you. And then I can look, I guess, in other places faiths that don't have Christ in it at all. But I just really can't imagine there being a lot of hope in that. I think there'd be just a lot of wishful thinking. So we thank you that we have a place of solid hope. But also we thank you that we have in you and in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit that dwells within us a sense of closeness, And may we be reminded as we go through difficult times, as we go through tough times, as we go through times where we feel like we've been forsaken or forgotten, may we be mindful that we have a high priest that understands everything that we've gone through. High priest that even understands our temptations. And yet one that did not fall, so we can lean upon him and trust in his goodness to be the place of our forgiveness. And Lord, may we share with the world around us who you are, and you're not some unapproachable icon or idol upon a shelf, or upon upon a wooden cross in a church, but that you are one of us, and your spirit, as it dwells with us, still seeks to comfort, to guide, to correct, and to bring hope. And so, Lord, as we lift this up, now, some people this week went through a really rough week. I know that, personally. I know people went through, some people went through very tough times. Others, it was a great week, but tough times will be coming. May we be mindful that you never abandon us, and that in you is our eternal hope, whatever happens in this world and in this life. We thank you for that hope that we cling to and we share with those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, our worship team is going to come and lead us in a song, and this is a song we call it, you know, a song of of invitation or a song of reflection, and you're uh, welcome to stand or sit. Thanks, John. Uh, But we just want it to be a time where you're reflecting on what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life as you have heard the Word, as you've been in a place of worship, if you've been in a place of prayer, and that uh, you respond to it as you feel fit. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. You're going to be invited to stand and sing, but again, if you need to sit and pray, you need to go for a walk and pray, you're welcome to do that as well. And this is a song where we are worshiping Christ in his worthiness to be our object of worship because of his willingness to enter into our humanity and carry for us our sins.